Good morning, Evangel. Good to see you through the fog. What a morning getting here. I hope you, well, you're obviously all safe. We hope anybody else still traveling here is safe in that fog. Welcome to Evangel this morning. We would ask that you stand and join us as we sing and worship together. Good morning to those of you at home, online, watching. We trust that you feel connected to this community of faith as well this morning. Jesus. Jesus, let your kingdom come here. Let your will be done here in us. Jesus, Jesus, there is no one. Strong to save in your mighty name, King of 
How's everybody doing today? Great. Won't you say hi and wave and as you're seated this morning? Well, it's great to see you here. You may be seated. Thank you. Great to see you here. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us via the live stream today, watching from home or elsewhere. Those of you who are here and uh, you made it in on this uh, foggy morning and so uh, welcome. Thank you for uh, making that effort. Thank you for being here today, and uh, glad that you arrived safe and sound. If this happens to be the first time that you've been at Evangel, we want to extend a warm welcome to you and uh, say that we'd love to come alongside you and uh, just serve you and help you in any way we can. And the way that we feel to best do that is to uh, ask you to fill out a connection card that you'll find in the seat in front of you, if you just take that and fill it out. And at the end of the service, you can take it to the welcome desk in the foyer, and someone will be there, the information desk, someone will be there to uh, uh, receive that. And hey, I have a small gift there for you, and uh, we'll, we'll help you in any way that we can. Also, just want to remind you that uh, next Sunday, Daylight Savings Time ends, and um, I don't, know, I don't know if I've ever experienced a year where I think most people will appreciate that most. I, I think whenever I say to someone, how you doing? Almost every single person I ask that to says, I'm tired. I'm tired. Everyone just seems to be tired. So 
Good news. Next week, there's time change, and I don't know, maybe that'll be helpful. Hopefully it will be, but uh, just keep that in mind uh, for next Sunday as you prepare to come in. Also, just want to remind you that next Sunday as well, we'll be at the end of the service, uh, following the service, we'll be celebrating Cindy Joyner, and we did mention a, a few weeks ago, Cindy's been our office administrator for almost 17 and a half years, and um, she is retiring, and uh, we want to celebrate that with her. She'll be relocating out of the area, and uh, so we just want to celebrate her and express our gratitude and love towards her, and so after the service next Sunday, uh, we will be doing that, so just keep that in mind as well. And also next Sunday, now, you may not be ready for this, okay? <laughs> but next Sunday, poinsettias go on sale. I know. We are four weeks from Advent. Four Sundays from now will be the first Sunday of Advent, if you can believe it. So if you're tired now, just wait till December, right? But uh, so uh, we'll make more information available to you next week, but uh, they will, uh, sales for poinsettias where you can place them here in memory or honor of someone will begin next week. Kids, uh, grade JK to grade five, you can make your way out the side here with your volunteers. Ushers, you can please come and receive our morning tithes and offerings. And if you prefer to give electronically, you can do that through e-transfer by sending it to giving at epcoakville.com and... Um, and that'll, that'll work just as well. God bless you. Handing it back to Carlene to continue to lead us this morning. You may remain seated. We'll invite you to stand and join us in a little bit. I have found here love and mercy from an infinite supply. I have found Living water from a well that won't run dry. At your feet I bow in wonder. At your feet I place my Thank you. 
Jesus in the street 
Cause I know there is peace within his presence I speak Jesus
Our scripture reading this morning is found in 2 Samuel, chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. Joab was told, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning, because on that day, The troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Carlene, for leading us so beautifully and so sensitively today. Thank you, worship team. Today we are continuing our fall sermon series, which we've entitled Heart for God, based on the life of King David, who is referred to in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. Now, last week we noted that we have reached a point in the life of David, and in fact, if you read 2 Samuel, you'll see that pretty much the first half of the book are his victories, and the second half of the book are his struggles and his challenges. And we've reached a point in the life of David where this man, after God's own heart, begins to behave in ways that are contrary to this description doing things that actually violate the heart of God. We said he's about 50 years old now, and he's been ruling for about 20 years, and God has been faithful to him. God has led him like God promised to. God has empowered him like he promised to. And David's life up until this point where things begin to go south was rife with victories because of his trust in God and the faithfulness of God. Yet somehow, all of this was not enough for David. And so last week, we considered what we'll call David's affair with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of of her husband. And we mentioned at that time that the prophet Nathan told David that his behavior would have consequences for his family in the future. And so today, we are going to be considering the dysfunction in David's family and how his lack of response created an environment for things to spiral out of control. And so as we do that today, we're we're going to be reminded that failure to confront painful realities in our families creates an environment for dysfunction and bitterness to thrive. Now, sometimes when we approach Scripture, and as as a preacher of Scripture, you know, some sermons are easy to preach. They're exciting because they're victorious, and and our particular denomination and and faith environment, you know, we we love to celebrate victory. We're, we're, you know, the, the, the victorious Christian life, and and then sometimes the subject matter is 
not so victorious. It's, it's challenging. It's difficult. It's important, but it's, it's hard to work through. And so I say that because as, I, as we begin today, I, I want you to know that for me, this is, this is a difficult one to preach for a number of reasons. The first is, even though we're considering today uh, an account that took place a few thousand years ago, this type of harm that we'll see here is a reality for many people today. And as I consider this passage, I recognize that there may be some who are present here or are watching via the live stream that may be somewhat triggered by, uh, you know, what we're talking about today, our scripture, because of personal experiences. And so I want you to know that my goal is not to cause you more pain, but it's to address a serious issue and hope that this type of behavior ends. Secondly, is as a husband and as a father, as a man, this story reminds me personally of the impact that my poor choices can have on those that I love and I'm responsible to influence. And so if, as I read a scripture like this, I, I don't feel arrogant. As I read a scripture like this, I feel like, you know what? If someone like David can fail, who's to say the rest of us can't? And so I address this scripture in humility today. And finally, historically, the church has invested significant energy into avoiding, let's just say, even covering up these type of painful realities because it's easier to pretend that these things are not happening than it is to call it out and declare that it was never acceptable in the first place. And so for those reasons, uh, this type of sermon is, is, is more difficult. So with this disclaimer, <laughs> we'll now explore our, our scripture. And it starts, sadly, with assault. As we mentioned last week, David had many wives and many concubines. And the result of that is that he had children with many different women. And if you read 2 Samuel from chapters 13 to 19, we are introduced to four primary members of his family. We meet Amnon, Absalom, Tamar, and Jonabad. Amnon is his son. Absalom is his son but it's his son from a different woman. Tamar is his daughter. She is the sister of Absalom. So Tamar and Absalom are brother and sister from the same mother, and Amnon is their half-brother from a different mother. David is father to all three. And Jonadab, he's a nephew. And so we're told that, you know, we're introduced to them under very dysfunctional circumstances. We're told that Amnon was lusting after his half-sister Tamar to the point that it is negatively affecting him physically, emotionally. Uh, you know, it's impacting his health. It's, it's impacting his sleep. And Jonadab, who appears to be close to Amnon, noticed that something was going on with him. Something's not right. And so he asked him, you know, what, what's the reason? What's going on with you? And so Amnon proceeded you know, told him, and then Jonadab devised a plan for Amnon that would result in the assault of Tamar. Amnon would ask his father to have, who's David, 
to have Tamar, his half-sister, bring some soup to him because he was ill. And once he was alone with Tamar in the room, he would assault her. David, not knowing the reason for the request, had Tamar take the soup to her brother. Tamar, thinking she was doing something kind for her brother, eagerly agreed. Amnon followed the plan. He was successful in his desire, and sadly, Tamar was assaulted. Not by a stranger in a dark alley or a park, but by someone she knew, someone she trusted in her own home by someone who should have protected her and watched out for her. Her kindness was exploited, and if you read the story in detail, you'll notice she said no. She begged him not to do it. She tried to reason with him. She tried to appeal to his compassion, but he was determined, and he was stronger. So this sad chapter of David's life, which spans multiple chapters in the recording of his life, and it starts with an assault. Secondly, silence. Our scripture records for us the various reactions to this disgraceful violation of a family member. Amnon, the rapist, had a sudden change of emotion. Now, instead of loving his sister Tamar, he drove her away, and the intensity of his hate is stronger than his lust. Tamar was devastated. And so she ran to her brother, Absalom, to find comfort. And Absalom minimized her assault by telling her, you know what, you need to keep quiet. This is your brother. Like, don't create a problem here. Just just stay quiet. And he said these words, and don't take it to heart. Don't make a big deal out of this, Tamar. It's, It's your brother, Let's just just leave it alone, which was a further violation of her. And so Absalom never said a word to Amnon, but he hated him for what he had done. David was furious when he found out what had happened. He's furious, but there's no indication in Scripture that he did anything or said anything to Amnon. As a father... He should have acted on behalf of his daughter. As the king, he should have upheld the laws that said that Amnon should be put to death for doing such a despicable thing. But he didn't do either. But then how could he? I mean, we're fresh off his story from last week. How could he? David himself had a history that we looked at last week. We call it his affair with Bathsheba, but we see very closely it really wasn't an affair. It too was an assault, and he had a similar history as his son. And his guilt and shame likely paralyzed him from taking the right action in holding his son accountable for this. Absalom waited for his father's response, waited for his father to act, but it didn't come. Silence all around. The family responded in silence. Everyone was angry, but no one advocated for Tamar, who was the victim of the assault. And we're told that she lived in her brother's house. She stayed there with her brother in his house, Absalom. And it says these words, and she was a desolate woman. 
meaning her, she was lifeless, dark, isolated. She had been assaulted and silenced. And here she is. She's left desolate. Thirdly, escalation. As a result of the silence, hatred, resentment, bitterness escalated in David's family. It began to fester. For two years, Absalom stayed silent while bitterness took root and controlled his thoughts and his actions. Absalom waited for his father's response and action, but none came. And if his father wasn't going to step up and do something, then he certainly was. And so the time had come to avenge the violation of his sister, to take things into his own hands, to bring justice. And so he too now devised a plan, a plan that would lure Amnon into a a situation where he would, would not think anything wrong could happen, where he then could have his men kill Amnon. And this plan worked as well. And now Amnon is dead. Immediately, Absalom fled to his grandfather's house for refuge, safety, and we're told that he stayed there for three years. And so what was David's response to this? Seeing his son avenge his daughter by taking the life of another son and now living at his grandfather's house, what is David's response? Well, we're told that he mourned the situation, but again, he did nothing. He did nothing. In fact, we're told that he left Absalom alone at his grandfather's house for three years without any contact whatsoever. Silence. Again, how could he judge Absalom for murder? He himself committed murder. After three years, David decided it was time to bring Absalom back home, and so he brought him back to Jerusalem, but he put him in one of his houses, and we're told that he didn't have contact with him for two more years. So now that's five years of silence, seven years since the assault. Well, finally, after five years, David reached out in reconciliation, but by now, Absalom's heart hurts ran too deep. Superficial hugging, making up, trying to fix this wasn't going to work for him. Bitterness and hatred ruled in his heart now. And we're told that Absalom secretly went about winning the hearts of the people, culminating with a ceremony at Hebron where he was crowned king. His following increased, and David feared for his kingdom and for his family and for his life. This sounds like a similar story, doesn't it? And so he fled to avoid Absalom, David did. He's on the run again. But confrontation was inevitable. And David's men were veterans, and they easily crushed Absalom's army. And during the battle, Absalom was killed. And David was waiting at home when the news came that his army had been victorious, but that Absalom had been killed. David had saved his kingdom, but he had lost his family. It's an interesting and sad series of events. Amnon destroyed his sister Tamar's life. Absalom, in retaliation, 
killed Amnon because he hurt his sister. Absalom then in turn hurt David because David's inaction and silence hurt him. Absalom, as a result, was killed in battle. And we're told that 20,000 other men were also killed in that battle. All as a result of David's silence and refusal to address the dysfunction in his family when he should have. Sadly, the only person that David mourned for in this story that we read of is Absalom. And that's the scripture we read today. He's mourning for Absalom. We are never told that he ever mourned for Tamar. It's Absalom he mourns for. So there are three areas today that I believe we can focus on lessons that we can learn from David's life because we learn lessons from the good things in people, but we also learn from the painful, difficult things from people. And there are lessons here for us to learn and to glean. And the first lesson is this. Families hurt each other. Families hurt each other. Families have the ability to be resilient and face the toughest of challenges and threats. You've seen it, I've seen it. Where families are strong. When challenges come from outside the family, there's a tragic accident, there's the death of a loved one, there's a loss of a job or a health diagnosis or financial struggles. These challenges tend to draw families together, they rally around each other, they form a team, and together they overcome and they face these things together. In fact, families are often stronger after they face challenges together, challenges that come from outside imposing on the family. But problems and challenges from within the family often creates the opposite reaction. Instead of pulling us together, it pushes us apart, divides us, Weakens the family unit, marriage unfaithfulness, abuse, behavioral issues, alcohol and drug abuse, pornography, dishonesty, theft. These things tend to tear families apart, not bring them together. Why? Because in these instances, someone in the family who was trusted has violated that trust and has hurt the family. And the result is anger and fear, pain, disappointment, frustration, broken trust, denial, cover-up, dysfunction, silence. The family should be a place of safety. The family should be a place of refuge. Family should be a place where people are empowered and esteemed, where there is trust and there is connection and value. But unfortunately, in many cases, the opposite is true. Because families hurt each other. Secondly, no response, silence is the worst response. When families hurt one another, 
whether it's by the words or their actions, accountability is necessary. Accountability is sadly rarely demonstrated in many families. And sometimes that's the greatest of the tragedy, that nothing is done. Many people don't want to admit that their behavior is or was inappropriate. Sometimes family members cover for each other because they think that silence is the best response. And time and time again, we see wives and husbands cover and justify each other's behavior. Parents cover and justify their children's behavior. Children cover and justify their parents' behavior, often blaming themselves for someone else's actions. And in the end, no one is held accountable, and it's dysfunctional. It's absolutely dysfunctional. Because everyone is responsible for their actions and should be held accountable for them. And so to confront issues in our family, we resist because it's to admit that there's a problem. And most families don't want to go there. Most families do not want to acknowledge that there's a problem. Confronting issues, holding others accountable, working through the issues in a healthy way is really hard work. It's sacrificial. It takes a lot. And it causes us to not want to do that. It's just... Sometimes we feel it's better just to leave well enough alone. Sometimes we don't know what to do. And families who don't know what to do usually do nothing. If you don't know what to do, you usually do nothing. It's easier to pretend that everything is okay than it is to confront. And so we put on a good front. We keep our pride and we deny the truth. After all, time heals all wounds, right? We don't think about it, we let enough time go by, it'll all eventually just go away. But time does not heal all wounds. In fact, time gives opportunity for unresolved dysfunction to fester. Ignoring problems doesn't fix them. And sadly, David's life demonstrates this truth for us vividly and clearly in our scripture today. Ignoring problems doesn't fix them. Silence makes it worse. And the third thing we learn from David's family is that hurting people hurt people. Unresolved hurts inevitably lead to bitterness which eventually leads to inflicting more hurt on others. When our pain is not acknowledged, when the one responsible for our pain is not held accountable, the result is more pain. Hurt can have an incredible impact on us because hurt often demands retaliation. Believing that getting even will resolve our pain. And in in reality, retaliation actually creates greater pain. Hurt will perpetuate itself to the point of destroying our families. And at some point, the cycle of hurt has to be broken. 
People need to be set free. Right action has to take place. And this process begins with honesty, that there is a problem. Admitting that there is a problem. Acknowledging the feelings and the hurts of other people. Of listening to each other. Hearing one another. Seeing one another. And all of this should lead to repentance by the ones who have inflicted the hurt. Saying yes, that they're sorry for their behavior and seeking forgiveness and And that repentance should lead to talking and listening and crying and counseling and ultimately change. It takes a lot of courage to admit that you failed. It takes a lot of courage to admit that you've done the wrong thing, that you've said the wrong thing. It takes a lot of courage to not stay silent when silence seems to be the easiest route take. If you want to move forward, if you want to save your family, if you want to experience the wholeness that God has intended for you and your family, you can't stay silent. You can't pretend that everything is okay. You can't ignore the problem hoping it's going to go away. With God's help, you can break the cycle of pain and hurt and bitterness so that you and your family can experience the freedom, can experience the joy, can know the strength that God wants your family and you to experience. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. In his book, In the Eye of the Storm, Max Lucado tells a story, and it's one of my favorite stories. It's a story of two paddle boats. They both left Memphis at about the same time. They're traveling down the Mississippi River. Destination is New Orleans. And as they're traveling side by side, sailors from one vessel made some remarks about the snail's pace of the other vessel. And in the moment, words began to be exchanged and challenges were thrown out and made. And before you know it, there was a race that had begun. Which one of them could make it to New Orleans first? The competition became vicious as the two boats roared their way through the deep south. One boat began falling behind. Not enough fuel. There had been plenty of coal for the trip, but not enough for a race. And as the boat dropped back, an enterprising young sailor took some of the ship's cargo and tossed it into the ovens. When the sailor saw that the supplies burned just as well as the coal, they fueled their boat with the material that they had been assigned to transport. And in the end, they ended up winning the race, but burned the cargo. Folks, God has entrusted precious cargo to us. Our spouses, 
our children, our families. And sometimes our focus becomes fixated on the things that are less important and we ignore what really needs attention in our families. And when this happens, we may accomplish some of our goals and we may experience some levels of success, but in the process, we end up burning the cargo and we lose those and we lose that which is most important. So what can we learn from David's family? Families hurt each other. Silence, no response, is the worst response. And hurting people hurt people. Because failure to confront painful realities in our families creates an environment for dysfunction and bitterness to thrive. Would, we, would you stand with us this morning? And this morning, I want us to think about our families, our marriages, our children, our family units. You know, what I find really impacting and interesting is when you read about Noah in Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews makes a very interesting statement. It says, he built an ark to save his family. <laughs> doesn't say he built an ark to save the world. doesn't say he built an ark to be obedient to what God asked. It says, he built an ark to save his family. And sometimes in my own life, sometimes, you know, people question why certain things. And my response is, I'm building an ark to save my family. You got to build an ark to save your family. You got to do the right thing. You got to be obedient. You got you to confront and deal with the issues. Because our families are precious cargo. And God wants us to never ignore the challenges in our family that's destroying them, but rather engage the tough places and work through it to find hope and peace purpose. And I don't, I don't know what your family is like. Maybe you have the perfect family, but <clears throat> I've never met anyone yet that doesn't have some level of dysfunction in their family. But today we're asking God by His Spirit to help us not make the mistakes of someone like David. They weren't actually mistakes, they were choices. To not fail like that but to do the right thing. So that at the end of the day, we don't have the mess that marked his legacy for all the world to know and remember. We don't need to have that. The legacy can be how we work through it, found hope and purpose and freedom and joy. Our worship team is going to lead us if you'd like someone to pray with you this morning, I'm going to head down front here. If you'd like me to pray with you, I'd be happy to do that before we conclude our service this morning.
that this morning, that you are good. You are good. And we thank you that you are good, and we thank you that your mercy endures forever. And this morning, we invite you and ask you to show mercy to our families. Lord, would you show your mercy to our families? Would you allow us to show mercy to our families. And Father, as we walk through difficult challenges and difficulties that are within our family units, things we never hoped or longed that would ever be a reality, and yet we find ourselves here, would you help us? Give us your strength. Give us your wisdom. Give us your compassion and your love. Give us a desire to do what is right in the midst of things that are wrong. And God, I pray today that you would be our strength and our help. Lord, I pray for every single family that's represented in this room this morning. I pray for every single family that's represented of those who watch our live stream this morning. And I pray that you would work miracles in our families because some of our families need miracles. That outside of a miracle of God, we, we, there is no hope for us. And so we look to you today to be that miracle and to be that hope when all seems desolate and dark and lifeless. And Father, today we think of our church family and I pray for those within our church family that have needs today, those who are sick or those who are not able to be here with us for various reasons. We pray for your comfort and strength for them. We specifically remember Edith today as she continues on her, this palliative care journey, God, of day by day, leaning on you for strength and peace and hope. Thank you for the hope that's in her heart. Thank you for the promises that you've made for her that are beyond, Lord, this life, 
And I pray for your comfort and strength for her and her family today. We pray for Joe in the hospital today. We pray for your strength in his body and for your healing in his body, Lord, that you would, you would help him and you would touch him and you would strengthen him. Lord, we just pray for so many areas and so many places that we have needs today. And though they may not be verbalized and spoken in this room or to anyone else for that matter, you know them and we give them to you this morning. We ask for you to help us. And Lord, as we leave this place today, help us to be people who live as you want us to live, who respond as you want us to respond, who reflect you, who focus on the most important of priorities and use us, God, to be instruments of hope and reconciliation and peace in this world, we pray. Starting in our families, extending all around us. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for journeying through a difficult one today. I think the worst is behind us. So we'll see you next week, God willing. God bless you. Have a great week.